Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad. I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. My name is Alex. I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford computer science PhD and a Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today is Dr. David Kaufman. He's a partner at Third Rock Ventures, a leading healthcare venture firm that specializes in company creation rather than the traditional venture investing model. He was previously chief medical officer and head of translational development at the Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute. Before that, he was leading translational oncology at Merck Research Laboratories, where he oversaw immuno-oncology, translational medicine, novel biomarker development, and global translational research partnering. David has an MD from Cornell University and a PhD in Immunology and Molecular Virology from Rockefeller University. David, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're so excited. And Alex and I have been looking forward to this call for quite a while now, actually. Let's start from the very beginning, David. For those in the audience who don't know about your background, you know, can you give us a little bit of a summary of your early life story and how and why you decided to, you know, let's say go to medical school and why you eventually decided to trot off the beaten path? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I don't come from a family with physicians or scientists, but I did grow up near NIH. And so I sort of fell into working in labs starting in high school. And then in college, I really became interested in global health, um, obviously because of the opportunity to address disparities in healthcare, but also just because it's a field at the intersection of science with a lot of other complex issues that are social, economic, et cetera. And I think that that's actually sort of characterized a lot of my career arc is seeking out those opportunities where there's science, but where there's a lot of complexity around putting that science to work. So after college, I always sort of assumed that that kind of career would lead me to become an academic physician scientist. And that was the early trajectory of my career. But in fellowship, I did an infectious disease fellowship. And I did my research training um, with Dan Baruch. And um, I guess I should back up and say that, um, you know, I did an MD-PhD program uh, because I thought that that would be a good way to sort of capture both of both the scientific and sort of broader aspects around a disease that I cared about. And I focused on HIV a lot. So I did my PhD in molecular virology. But while I was doing that, I was also spending time in clinics on the Lower East Side in New York. I did some work with partners in health. I spent time at the end of medical school in Uganda working with the CDC. And so it was really sort of, I tried to take the program as an opportunity to get a very holistic view on the challenges of, um, of HIV prevention and HIV care. Um, so then I went, and, and as a fellow, um, like I said, I, was, I trained with Dan Baruch, and Dan, who's at Beth Israel up here, is the originator of the, the Ad26 vaccine platform that J&J uses. And essentially, the vast majority of those vaccines actually start life in Dan's lab. And, and Dan, Dan and, his, and his colleagues and, and, and folks do the vector design. They do the small animal and large animal testing. So it was an environment that was very much focused on actually making vaccines to have, have an impact. And I really got the product development bug at that point. Uh, so I was a junior faculty member, but decided that ultimately um, I thought I could be more impactful by getting closer to the product development process. And I looked at a lot of different opportunities. 
when I ultimately decided to, to leave an academic career because I figured you only leave once. I had done some consulting around startups and biotechs in the Boston Cambridge area. I had looked at things as diverse as policy fellowships in DC, even management consulting, just because I knew some people who had some really interesting jobs in the global health world who'd gone that path. Um, and then I looked at both for-profit and nonprofit product development opportunities. Ultimately went to Merck, um, in part because Merck had a training program where you could spend your first three years sort of choosing your own adventure as you rotated through that kind of environment. And also just because when I sought advice, even from really global health-oriented people, they all said, you know, go to a place like Merck because so much really deep knowledge about how to do product development right is siloed in organizations like that. And that was an incredibly good, uh, that was incredibly good guidance that I received. And I just say that, but that one of the things that that training program allowed me to do was to really have a bit of a, um, again, off the beaten path kind of experience while in big pharma. And, and then subsequently beyond that, I've been able to choose roles where there hasn't been a clear roadmap, which has been part of what's been exciting. Yeah, David, that's incredibly insightful. And, and one of the things that I wanted to point to is this notion of environment, right? Even before you sort of officially like went off the beaten path, you were an MD-PhD student at Cornell and Rockefeller, and, and I had the privilege of being a medical student at Cornell. You know, all the really smart kids were the MD-PhDs who were just futzing around at Rockefeller or at Memorial Sloan Kettering, where the rest of us were at Cornell. You know, I, I imagined that environment and then Dan's lab over at BI, where as a surgical resident for a couple of years, those sort of enriching environments, even within sort of the clinical context, but a little bit different, a little bit broader in aperture must be really, really important when you're trying to actually go off the beaten path. One of our previous guests, Sid Mukherjee, who's obviously, you know, wrote Emperor of All Maladies as a great scientist, he sort of talks about how he likes to cultivate that sort of entrepreneurial spirit within his lab. So even though he's sort of knee deep in the basic sciences, he, he's also very involved in actually innovating, not just inventing, but innovating and translating his inventions into commercial products. Um, so, so really, really highlights that even in the thick of, you know, hospital or an academic medical center, there's many ways that you can start getting involved off the beaten path early on. There's so much for us to talk about, David. I think let's jump to your work at the Gates MRI. We recently had one of your previous colleagues, Claire Wagner, who's the head of corporate strategy on, on our podcast. And, and she was such an amazing guest and, and sort of told us uh, about the inner workings there. So you helped establish the Gates MRI as a so-called nonprofit biotech, sort of developing novel drugs and vaccines for TB, malaria, GI diseases, neonatal health, global health, public health challenges. Can you talk to us a little bit about that experience? And then additionally, it's certainly a different model than the traditional biopharma company. Can you talk to us a little bit about the differences there and, and when you think a model like the Gates MRI makes the most sense? Sure. So I had the privilege of being the founding chief medical officer at the Gates MRI. And I actually think, you know, the, the idea of the Gates MRI is actually to sort of explode that paradigm that developing products for global health should somehow be fundamentally different than the way that we go about developing products in the traditional pharma and biotech settings. And so one of the things that we were able to do is we had the incredible reputation of the Gates Foundation and the Gates name on the door and so from day one, we were really able to recruit people who are leaders in every area 
of functional expertise that you need to put together a world-class drug and vaccine development organization. Um, and um, there's been a lot of nonprofit product development efforts. I think that sort of the bench depth that we were able to assemble um, gave us the opportunity to sort of apply those skill sets at the cutting edge of, of every discipline in, in drug and vaccine development to these kinds of really challenging diseases. Um, and I think this model really makes a lot of sense if you believe that diseases in low and middle income countries really should be treated very similarly or the same um, as diseases with the same urgency, with the same sort of sense of energy that you bring to the problem and thought put into development um, that, you know, as diseases that affect people in high income countries. Um, of course, in the end, doing development in a global health setting is different. You have very different stakeholders around the globe. Um, some of whom are quite familiar with how drug and vaccine development works in sort of a pharma biotech model and others who aren't. You have a lot of diversity in terms of the sites that, where you need to work. Um, and of course, it's always challenging. You know, the flip side of the, the power of having the Gates name on the door is that from day one, before you have any capabilities and you're just sitting in a WeWork office, um, <laughs> there's a lot of high expectations for how, how you're going to deliver and how quickly you're going to deliver. So it was certainly an incredible learning curve around building an organization uh, with those challenges and with those opportunities. Uh, I will say though, that the organization is now really a fully functional early and late stage develop development organization running programs in, in tuberculosis, RSV, malaria, Shigella, premature birth. So it's quite exciting to see the organization take off and become successful. Yeah, no, that's very, very helpful, David. And thanks for spelling all of that out. I had a, quite a few mentors who've actually gone from various places within pharma or management consulting in the pharma practice to the Gates MRI or the Gates Foundation. They're doing some amazing, amazing work all throughout the world. And I imagine it's even more, I mean, we talk about how challenging it is for biotechs. You know, it takes 10 to 12 years. It's, you know, one to $3 billion to create novel drugs. But now you have a different set of stakeholders, different set of pressures, and a more global held aperture must like scale the challenge, you know, tenfold. And so I can only imagine how complex it is to work in that ecosystem. Let's chat a little bit about how specifically your MD has helped you in your various roles. You know, you sit on the board of directors of Kipa Pharma and are also the acting head in clinical and translational research, Asher Biotherapeutics. I'm curious, what insights are you able to offer management that perhaps non-physicians may not be able to offer? And, and do you, broadly speaking, think it's important for MDs to consider taking a more prominent role in the process of developing and getting drugs onto the market, either on the operating side in an entrepreneurial sense or in big pharma or on the investing side? And if so, how can folks get started? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I think that's really central, particularly when you're in a small environment or whether when you're investing in smaller companies is on a lean budget, you know, you're trying to put science to, you know, in, in, uh, to service in the setting of a value creation framework, right? And to do that, what you really need to understand is what a wide variety of stakeholders, clinicians, investors, you know, ultimately regulators are going to see as key value inflection points that represent really critical de-risking for, for a product that's under development. And there are a lot of skill sets that are needed to really articulate and drive confidence in those value inflection points. But MDs obviously bring a unique perspective to the table 
in terms of really being able to understand and then articulate, you know, what are the critical things that we need to know in order to get confidence that we're going to ultimately have clinical impact. Um, you know, that's, of course, why most of us as clinicians get into drug development in the first place, because we really see ultimately to the end impact on patients. Um, I think it's important also that, you know, while that's a real strategic value to a company, I think it's also a really strong culture of strong cultural value in that ultimately companies where people believe in the mission and believe in ultimate patient impact are the ones that do the best. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, David. You know, I sort of think about it as having a line of sight to the patients, which, you know, if you just have never been in the clinic or if you've never gone to medical school, uh, you certainly can develop. It's just a lot more challenging. And uh, where MDs also flourish, I've realized speaking with folks like you who are doing excellent things outside of clinical medicine is in communication and stakeholder management. You know, we had Elizabeth Rosenthal on our program. She obviously wrote an American Sickness. She used to be an ER doc before she went to the New York Times to be a journalist. And she said that when she gives advice to young journalists, she sort of thinks back to the craziest day she's ever had in the ER where everything was on fire and, you know, you have a family and they just got a really terrible diagnosis and you walk into the room, you know, you're not their PCP. They don't know you. You don't have any connection to them. You're probably never going to see them again. How do you, for that 20 minutes, 30 minutes, establish connection with that patient? Uh, that requires a really keen sense of self-awareness of how human beings think, a lot of EQ. And so all of those things, I think, MDs tend to have in droves and then just going and getting some training off the beaten path and utilizing some of those transferable skills can be really, really valuable. And so it, it sounds like we both agree that MDs need to really think about all the really cool ways they can have an impact outside of clinical medicine. And if they actually want to go ahead and do that, they should make the jump. Sometimes you can do both at the same time, of course, and it's not necessarily a jump, but I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity there. You know, the last question I had was really about the amazing work that you're doing at Third Rock Ventures. So Third Rock, you know, along with a couple of other firms, some come to mind, you know, maybe places like Flagship or Atlas. These places have really pioneered the venture creation model, but everyone does it slightly differently. You know, can you explain to our audience members the basics of the model and how specifically Third Rock approaches company creation and also Many firms have tried to copy the Third Rock or flagship models, but with variable success. It sort of reminds me of, you know, the whole Toyota principles that we learn in business school that a lot of different automakers tried to copy, but again, with variable success. What is the special sauce at a place like Third Rock, and, and how can other firms learn to successfully implement this model for themselves? Well, I appreciate all the positive things you're saying about Third Rock, and I, I can tell you, you know, I kind of had the the cognitive dissonance of leaving the Gates ecosystem in the middle of a global pandemic to come to Third Rock. And, and obviously that's because I really believed it was an incredible place to have impact. Um, you know, as you say, you know, Third Rock is essentially a company creation firm. And I would say really at the core of what makes Third Rock successful are the people here. Uh, and what I mean by that is a few things. First of all, you know, at the, at the mid to senior levels here, everybody comes from a very deep operating background. It's not a group of investors. And so people really deeply understand the many of the downstream challenges of drug development, as well as company culture, company growth. 
And then at the more junior levels, people come with a very strong science and business background, but they're really eager to learn the ropes of company creation. And, and part of the model for both the senior and the junior folks here is that we all um, really take the time once companies are launched past the ideation phase to make sure that those companies are stood up and, and, and successful. And we do that, for those of us who are full-time here, by taking interim roles, like you were describing. I'm the acting head of clinical development for Asher, which is one of our portfolio companies. But a lot of us do this on a regular basis. And then the junior folks are actually expected to go out full-time in operating roles in our, in our company. So there's this real focus on actually building and operating companies. Another part, I think, of the, the culture here, it's, that's a direct corollary of that focus on the, those types of phenotypes and, and this kind of company building, is that we understand intuitively that every company needs a diverse set of expertises to come in and, and, and help out both during the ideation and the launch phase. And so the culture here is incredibly team-driven. It's a very flat culture. You have people who are really senior and people who are fresh out of grad school, and everyone's ideas are being listened to around the table. We don't launch companies that have the name of sort of one partner on the door. They're third rock companies. And so that kind of um, sort of collegial and flat culture really ensures that the companies that we develop ha have been touched by a lot of people with a lot of really diverse perspectives and expertise to bring to the table. David, you know, that's very interesting that the first thing you flagged was culture. And I appreciate that point just because, you know, the venture creation model can breed, I think, a very intense culture just because instead of from afar, you're sort of investing in a company and then helping them once in a while and then sort of just doing your own thing from more of an investing lens, you're actually in the weeds building a company out of scratch and, and having all these really, really intelligent people with deep operating experience who might disagree, it can be very intense. At least that's what I've heard. But multiple people have flagged to me that the culture at Third Rock is absolutely fantastic. I'm just curious, before we move on, like in such an intense environment, how have y'all been able to maintain such a flat and collegial culture? I think it's a great question, especially since, as I described, there's a lot of people that move through. Um, I would say it takes a huge amount of intentionality during interviewing and hiring. And then I think it takes people who are drawn to this organization, particularly because of that culture. It is very intense here. And, if, and I think a lot of us feel that if you're going to spend this much time with a group of people, you better be doing it in a way that you really enjoy. And I do think that this is a theme, you know, just talking to folks who are earlier in their careers. Um, you know, there's a lot of choices to make out there and there are a lot of ways to make decisions. And I think that, you know, for those of us who are lucky enough to be in some of these rarefied environments, we all have tons of choice. And I think that there are um, ways of making decisions where, you know, your primary focus is on doing things that you feel passionate about and where you think it's going to be fun. Um, and, and to me, like, that's part of this whole off the beaten path <laughs> thing is to try to really make those decisions based on... Um, not the long-term, you know, 20, 10, five, even five years from now, where do I need to be and what, what dues do I need to pay? But, you know, where can I go where I'm really going to enjoy myself? And I think we try to create that culture at Third Rock as an environment where people are going to have um, a really positive experience doing what they're doing today, even as they're on these trajectories that are going to take them off in all different directions. No, very helpful, David. And I just wanted to outline for our audience what, what an incredible place 
from what I've heard, Third Rock actually is and what amazing work that you and and other firms in venture creation are actually doing. Uh, it, it's a slightly different model than what people typically think of biotech investing. And so I encourage our audience who are interested in biotech investing to really explore this model and then think about how Third Rock and Flagship and some of these other companies go about creating companies. So I'm going to pass it along. You know, we could keep talking forever, David, but I want to pass it along to my colleague, Alex, who has a few questions. Sure. No, thank you very much, Chad. And uh, thank you, David, for the discussion. I think it's a fascinating one. I think one of the points that you've mentioned around the importance of the mission of the company resonated like really heavily. And I think so much of the success of companies comes from attracting the right talent and in today's world, uh, the really good talent doesn't come only for extrinsic incentives like money or reimbursement. Like It's really important uh, to have an intrinsic incentive, such as a mission that they really believe in. And so that point resonated really well. And I think it's really interesting if you look at the uh, model of venture creation, how it is uh, transitioning from the biotech space to digital health as well. One of my uh, mentors, Brett Shaheen, uh, founded Redesign Health, which is basically a venture creation uh, studio in New York focused solely on digital health companies. So I find that analogy really interesting. Maybe one question from my side would be around the specific differences between your role as a venture partner compared to a traditional VC investor. I think our audience would be really interested to know kind of how those two roles compare. Um, well, I, I don't know a lot about venture investing versus company creation, right? I, I was really drawn to the latter. And I think, um, you know, what, what drew me to it was really the culmination of having spent a decent amount of time working in development to the point where I wanted to bring all of that development experience to this early space. And, you know, it was kind of like I was saying in the previous, um, in the answer to the previous question from, from Shad. I think um, a big part of building successful companies is being able to look downstream and understand the challenges that the company might face. Um, and so, um, you know, and that and that the kinds of experiences that you gain in these highly social environments of pharma and biotech and the nonprofit world are both, um, you know, the technical understanding of those challenges, but also the cultural challenges of navigating different kinds of organizations, external stakeholders, building a culture all those kinds of things. I, I think the other thing that's exciting, you know, as you go through a career like that is you do build a really strong network in academia and other collaborators. And you realize that's really one of the fun parts of the job is being able to continue to tap into that network. And so, you know, you come, one of the things that drew me to this environment was the ability to keep working with all those great people, draw on that network and integrate that skill set from everything I've learned in different environments into actually building new new organizations. So that's what I like about doing this. Um, I think um, I can't, like I said, I can't speak as much to the investing side, except to say that I think, um, you know, it's, it, it certainly gives you a much deeper understanding of every little bit of what you're trying to do when you're putting money into a company, if you're coming at it from this company creation space, um, because of all the things that I just mentioned. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily less risky because it's earlier than investing in companies that are already established, but at least you have the depth of information that comes from bringing all that to the table and going through the company build process with collaborators. 
David, thank you for sharing that. And I, I can absolutely see how having that operational experience would give you a lot of insight into what makes a good opportunity and where the challenges may arise down the line. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. I guess maybe a follow-up question would be around how you think about the potential of early stage opportunities in, in venture creation, for example, when you're pursuing a specific mechanism of action or a specific kind of drug development project. I'm really curious to know what is your framework to thinking about identifying the right opportunities and how has your MD and PhD background influenced that thinking? I know Jeff Bezos says that in the business world, you should make decisions based on 70% of the information. But I just feel in the early stage of venture, like no matter how much information you have, like it doesn't approximate 50%. So being able to have a really good framework to think about these opportunities is important. And I mean, you've had tremendous experience in the space. So I'm really curious to know how you think about it. Yeah. Well, I like to come at the problem from both ends. From the upstream ends, you're often dealing with emerging science, sometimes from a single lab or a single investigator. And the question is, how do you take that science and do the critical de-risking in order to understand what the probability is that it really has the potential to impact product development? And then the downstream question is, where ultimately can you point it? Are you going to be able to point it at problems that are really meaningful problems in human health? And if you feel like you can get a handle on both of those things relatively early and describe during a seed phase, for example, over a certain time frame, that you can be disciplined in actually answering some key questions that critically de-risk that upstream science. And at the same time, you can envision the trajectory into diseases that are meaningful, then I think you're in a good place. Um, I will say that um, you know, when you're working in the venture space and building biotech companies, that there is a certain set of parameters that define sort of the time frame over which you really have to sort of answer those questions. Um, there are obviously are a variety of models where we're creating longer runways for, for really challenging problems in, in, in the space. But typically, you know, the venture model does give you some constraints where you can't be so far upstream that uh, it's going to take forever to really understand what the business model is and, and where you're going to point a new, a new technology or a new tool. So figuring out where the sweet spot is where it's a short enough runway and the tools exist to do the de-risking that you think is necessary. Um, and then again, if you're going to point it at areas of important disease impact, you're going to build a culture where people believe in what, we're, what, what you're doing. And that goes to your earlier point. Thank you very much, David. This reminds me of a conversation we had with Stéphane Bantel, the CEO of Moderna in one of the classes at HBS. So we have this class that Chad and I are doing around translating biotech innovations from the lab to basically to the patients, pretty much. And so we get to speak to a lot of uh, biotech CEOs. And I remember I asked Stéphane around how he was optimizing for large impact and like scale and platform during the early days of Moderna. And he told me like, all of that doesn't matter. Like the most important thing that you should focus on in the earliest stages is protecting from downside and addressing the biggest risks and de-risking them. Like all the upside would come later. So certainly appreciate your point on that. And I guess my next question, I would like to jump a little bit deeper into drug development. In one of the previous episodes that we had, 
we were talking about how the whole drug development landscape is going towards an N of one, uh, drugs becoming much more personalized and targeted towards smaller patient populations based on specific, meaningful, and clinically relevant biomarkers. So from your experience and overview of the space, I'm really curious to know your thoughts on where personalized medicine is going. Uh, it's a great question. Um, we could spend hours talking about this, of course. What I would say, you know, at the beginning, I guess you're you're sort of alluding to the the sort of progression towards end of one or very ultra rare populations um, as as addressable populations. I come from a global health background, so I have sort of in some instinctive intrinsic resistance to going in that direction. That being said, I'm also a translational scientist and a biomarker scientist by training, so I do also really love the precision that can be brought to, um, to disease and thinking that way. I do think for this sort of ultra rare disease setting that we're getting into a space where there has to be a lot of really deep interactions with payers, with regulators to build new models for how to move forward. And I don't know if it's going to be the businesses that drive those conversations, the biotech businesses, or if it's going to be coming initially from regulators and regulatory science innovation or payers or for nonprofits that are going to help to catalyze the conversation. But clearly, there is some conversation that needs to be had to really assemble the multiple stakeholders that are going to be needed to make um, some of these ultra-rare or N-of-1 diseases more, more addressable. I guess where I like to see this precision medicine play out in some of the company creation models that I've seen is what I would describe as like concentric circles, where you know your initial development program may be in a highly genetically defined population. And that gives you both a deep mechanistic understanding of that particular population and also perhaps a homogeneity that allows you to see signals earlier. Um, but uh, you know, I like to see that in the setting of broader populations that are less genetically defined but have similar pathophysiology where you can then spread outward from your initial proof of concept in a small population and maybe a, a rapid path to approval uh, but then to have broader disease impact beyond that initial population. So um, I guess that's sort of, for me, the kind of model that would both um, capitalize on some of that focus on, on increasingly small genetic populations, but also go beyond it to have broader impact. That is very interesting. So I've done my master's in global health as well. And so I've spent a lot of time studying neglected tropical diseases and and it's really unfortunate to see that there are so many diseases that affect tens of millions of people who don't have enough money to pay for the drugs. And therefore, we don't have enough market incentive for companies to develop products. Like if we look at ecosystems like the U.S., I mean, the incentive structure is working fantastically if you're measuring that by the amount of innovation that we are having. But th this incentive structure in the biotech space is to some extent making the U.S. foot the bill for the innovation, inflating the costs in the U.S., and it is not providing enough incentive for drug developers to develop products for the rest of the world. And so I'm really curious to know your thoughts on how this model can change. And maybe if you can point out to some examples from your work with the MRI, really curious to know your thoughts on how kind of this financial incentive and reimbursement framework should change moving forward and drug development? You know, I wish I had the answer to this. Of course, this is, this is a really, really challenging problem. 
Um, and, and what I can tell you is that as powerful as philanthropy is in helping to address these problems, it can't fix, it can't fix the problems by itself, right? Um, I, maybe I'll just point out a couple of things that I think are, are interesting in this regard, just from my own experience. Um, I mean, the first is I think, particularly for very low income settings, there's often an unwillingness to even try because there's a belief that you can't even accomplish it even if you did put money towards a problem. You couldn't accomplish the, the treatment or the prevention or whatever. Um, I had the privilege of working with the CDC um, on the first rollout of HIV treatment in rural Africa. And it was at a time when people never didn't think that anyone could adhere to HIV treatment in rural Africa, nor could the monitoring be appropriate for drugs like AZT in that setting to ensure safety of patients. And this project actually showed that with a community health promoter model, very low cost model, um, training people who had no medical background, that it was eminently feasible and there were actually better outcomes and better viral load suppression than in most parts of the US. And um, I found out many years later when Tony Fauci was speaking at the Brigham, he talked about visiting this project after I had left and um, it was up and running and being really inspired by it, coming back and talking to George W. Bush about the success and that was part of what catalyzed the PEPFAR program. Um, so I'm very much of the mind that doing this kind of demonstration in environments like that of things that people don't think are possible can then subsequently ch completely change the health economic conversation, the political conversation. I'm, in, I'm working, um, I'm, I'm recently rotated off the board of the Society for the Immunotherapy of Cancer, but while I was on the board, I started and I continue to lead a global access initiative around access to cancer immunotherapy, particularly PD-1 checkpoint blockade. And the same kind of model of, can we show in resource poor settings that we can define the minimal infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, that's needed to safely treat patients with something as complicated as immunotherapy? Um, can that change the conversation around health economics, around feasibility? Um, so I'll highlight that. I think another thing, which is sort of much more in the biotech space is just we always think that there has to be a very long gap between the time that a technology or an innovation impacts first world health, high income country health versus lower income country health. And I don't see, I hope that that's something that we can really, where we can change the thinking. And I think the Gates Foundation is doing this, for example, in thinking about how to apply in vivo gene editing and gene therapy for diseases like sickle cell or for like HIV cure. And um, some of this has been in the news recently, partnership with Novartis, other partnerships. But the idea that you could take some that cutting edge and you could cure kids in West Africa of sickle cell um, is extremely exciting. It's not that it's cheap, but there are ways of doing it more cheaply than we do it when we think only about this market in terms of developing it. And the more that we can close the gap and start to think about those applications early, um, the better, I think, for, for everybody. Yeah, no, David, I think this is fascinating. And just if you look at the, and this is following up on your point of taking these cutting edge innovations and bringing them to, to solve global health problems in low income settings. I mean, if we think about how biotech has evolved, like over the last 20 years, I mean, today we have like office spaces that we are leasing labs like office spaces like i know we're kind of used to this idea but if we compare it to 15 years ago like it just shows us how much the space of biotech has evolved so i think i'm very excited about this potential as you've mentioned and maybe uh one follow-up 
question in terms of the financing, do you think that there is a role in terms of providing in advance financial incentive for innovators to develop products? So similar to the Global Alliance for Vaccine Immunization or the vaccine bonds, do you think that that element can help solve some of this market inefficiency? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, I don't come from an economics and finance background. Um, my my sense is that you can structure these kinds of incentives and that they help. Um, but ultimately, if you don't build sustainable markets, it's much more challenging. Um, I think that there really needs to be a combination of push and pull incentives. And that certainly helps and certainly catalyzes. But thinking about how you ultimately um, convince local payers in middle-income markets, for example, to really understand the value of and reimburse treatments, et cetera, et cetera. And, and those markets are growing and changing. I mean, it hasn't felt like the world's been moving forward in that kind of direction over the last few years because of everything that's been happening. But really, you know, there, there are more and more places in the world that can drive markets. And I think, um, you know, hopefully that will parallel the kinds of push and pull incentives that governments and nonprofits and others can put out there. That is very interesting because, and I think a parallel can be also drawn to the field of international aid. I mean, there's a lot of academic work that that says that temporarily one-time financial aid to a particular area can actually have negative consequences because it creates the sort of reliance on international aid and it prevents a functioning like infrastructure from developing to solve the local problems. So I think that is a fascinating insight. And thank you for sharing, David. And along those lines, by the way, and I think this is part of it is, you know, we're talking, we're thinking about solving these problems from Cambridge. But part of this is also in any interaction with low income country settings, there should be a strong emphasis on transferring knowledge, skills, technology to local stakeholders, right? The more that local stakeholders have control, the more that they can intrinsically build solutions to these kinds of problems. Yeah, I know that is such a great point. And I remember when I was studying medicine in Syria, I was very interested in research and I wanted to publish an academic paper. And believe me or not, I couldn't find anyone in my city or broadly in the country who can mentor me and who've had previous publishing experience. So I had to reach out to Syrian doctors abroad and we ended up like building this organization where we pair international mentors with local researchers to build like the research capacity in the country. So I absolutely echo your point there. Maybe my last question would be around AI and machine learning. There is a lot of innovation that is happening with AI and machine learning in the space of drug development. So I'm very curious to know your thoughts on what are the biggest problems that can be solved with AI and how do you think about the concepts of companies like Benevolent AI, which has these massive natural language processing models that scours the medical literature uh, to identify potential drug targets, or Valo Health, which is one of the uh, flagships recent com- recent companies, and they want to create like an integrated in-house drug- AI-enabled drug development uh, and discovery platform. So curious to know your thoughts there. Sure. Well, first of all, again, I'm not an expert in AI and machine learning. Uh, that being said, you know, it's clearly very early days, but really exciting days. And um, there's so many places where this is some, I, I think we're all confident that there's so many places where this is going to be transformative from computational chemistry to understanding protein-protein interactions, um, 
to, to building much better high throughput screening systems, and then all the way into identifying biomarkers and defining patient populations and even surrogate endpoints for approval based on a deep understanding of what's ultimately going to translate into clinical benefit. So, so many places that it could be successful. Um, you know, I go back to something I said earlier, which is sort of this understanding of how the venture model matches up to different challenges. And again, either the venture model sometimes needs to expand and stretch, or people need to understand exactly what kind of company you need to build to address what particular challenge. Um, I think when you talk about some of these companies that are trying to sort of solve everything with a giant database, um, maybe that will work or not, but certainly the timelines for actually reading, reaching what I think of as traditional value inflection points, um, it's very different. So you either you have to have different investors who see value differently, um, and, and that may not be, that may be a mix of tech investors and healthcare investors, for example. Or um, you need to really think about where is AI maturing and where is it matched to the data sets, right? Because obviously to do good machine learning, you need really, really good data sets of a certain type to match the type of tools that you're applying. And so where is the data actually rich enough um, or the tools for creating that data rich enough that you're gonna be able to actually make the kinds of progress? Um, so I'm really excited to see these companies emerge when there is a real focus on a very particular challenge. The data and the tools are really, really well matched. And then ideally, it's a white box kind of approach. So you're actually getting deep insight that makes sense ultimately out of the algorithms that you're applying rather than, than just um, being able to find cats. Uh, yeah, no, I certainly agree. <laughs> I mean, there is a very famous saying in the space of, of machine learning. Like if you put garbage in, like it will be garbage out. Actually, like when I'm building like AI models in my PhD, like most of the time that I spend is actually on the data and like pre-processing that data. Like at the end, the implementation of the algorithm is a line of code. But like most of the time that you spend is actually on the data. So I completely echo your sentiment there. David, before we finish this episode, my last question would be for medical doctors or medical residents and practitioners who are interested in pursuing a similar path, perhaps, or who are interested in third rock, how can they get in touch with yeah. you? Well, I will go back to sort of the aside that I made earlier, which is, you know, do what you're passionate about and do something that you're, you feel immediately is going to be fun and exciting. I mean, coming out of medical school, coming out of medical training, there are so many doors open to you. I think sort of understanding your worth and not necessarily jumping through hoops is to me the most important thing. Um, this comes up often when people are saying, hey, should I do a residency or a fellowship to get to X or Y career? And I always tell people, don't do those things unless you want to be a doctor because you're spending 80 hours a week, used to be more, by the way, but now whatever, 80 hours a week. And you're really, you know, you're taking care of patients. If you don't want to take care of patients, you shouldn't do it. Um, but if you love taking care of patients and you might also love other things later in your career, then you should go do it. Um, so that's probably my biggest advice is, is do whatever you feel most passionate about. And if you follow your passion, sometimes they'll take you to places on the path. Sometimes they'll take you to very unique places. Um, but if you're, if you're lucky enough to continue to be able to do that, the other thing is to find great mentorship and keep yourself on a learning curve. Um, I mean, for me, I've always tried to find environments where I, I'm a little bit out over my skis. Sometimes I've stumbled because of that. Um, sometimes I've been successful. Um, but if you're not in a position where you feel like you're messing up some of the time, then, then you're not going to sort of have the same steepness of your learning curve. 
At least that's been my experience. Well, I'd be happy to talk to folks. And my email is going to be in the information around the podcast episode. So please take a look and send me an email. Um, Also, I'll just mention that Third Rock has an incredible associates program. So if there's any interest in that, please get in touch with me as well. Thanks. Thank you, David. It was a fascinating conversation. Shad and Alex, it's been great to talk to you guys. Thank you so much. Shad, that was such a great conversation with David. I really enjoyed it. I guess my key takeaway is around his answer to my question of what would you optimize for when you're making a career decision? I think his answer was very powerful when he mentioned that he would optimize for learning. And I think the way David described optimization for learning as putting himself in a position where he is not 100% comfortable, like the degree to which you want to take risk and you want to be in an uncomfortable position is valuable. And it's like something that is very subjective. But I think that notion of putting yourself in a position where you are uncomfortable when you're taking risks, you might fail in some of the things and you might succeed in many, but at the end of the day, you'll be learning massively. So I think it is a very powerful insight to put yourself outside your comfort zone and in positions where you're taking risk, you're doing things that you're not 100% comfortable with, meaning comfortable from the confidence in the ability of doing the job or doing the task. And that would massively optimize for your learning. So that's my key takeaway from my side. Over to you, Shad. Yeah, that's a great takeaway, Alex. Uh, I think for me, it's more of a knowledge-based takeaway this time, which is the differences between the venture creation model that Third Rock and Flagship have pioneered versus the traditional venture investing model. And we could talk an hour about really the nuanced differences between the different models, but you know, traditional biotech venture investors will source companies, fully formed companies that they'll invest in in the seed round or the series A round. Whereas folks at Third Rock and Flagship, they all do it slightly differently, but they typically will source ideas or innovations out of academic labs or hospitals and research settings. And then they'll try to do some more research depending on where their research actually has stopped and try to actually build and create a company in-house out of it. And the types of people who work at these different funds tend to be quite different. So if you're specializing in company creation, the senior folks tend to, as David said, have very deep operational experience, either working in startup themselves or at large cap pharmas. They know how to start, build, and execute on actually scaling a company. Might not come as much from sort of strict investing or financial background, which is quite interesting. David, it didn't even seem like considered himself sort of an investor in the traditional sense. It was more of of a company creator coming from a very rich company creation background. I think the quote-unquote upside of a venture creation model, there's there's many and there's some downsides as well. But uh, one of the upsides is sort of you're de-risking the management component and the process component of creating and scaling a company because so much of what it takes to actually succeed in this space is having the right people and the right jobs and just pattern recognition and knowing how to actually work through problems that are going to inevitably come up and and push through those and scale those companies. And so if you have people who are just expert company builders, that process is going to be de-risked in a different way than uh, just, you know, sourcing companies with their own 
management team, some of whom may be inexperienced and things like that. So it's a model that's worth for audience members to actually read a little bit more about because it's actually very interesting. So, you know, for me, Alex, that was sort of the big, big takeaway. Really excited about this conversation and really excited about our future conversations we have coming up. So join us next episode for more conversations such as these with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And to get in touch with us, you can always email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. Take care.